Don Miguel Nemesio Silva de Peralta y de la Córdoba was born in 1708. He was the scion of a prestigious Spanish family, being related through his father's line to Philip IV of Spain and even Louis XIV of France. Once he had grown to manhood, he entered into the service of King Philip V in 1727 during a war between Spain and France, and he rose to the rank of lieutenant in the Royal Dragoons. In 1742, at the age of 34, his service to king and country was recognized when His Majesty appointed Peralta as a royal inspector with orders to sail to the New World and reach Guadalajara. His semi-secret mission was to find the source of the reason for falling revenues coming in from the New World and its rich silver mines, and it said that Peralta's investigation into the matter would even lead to the expulsion of the Jesuits in 1767. Well pleased with his inspector, the king announced in 1744 his intention to grant Peralta large swaths of land at the northern portion of New Spain, but unfortunately he did not follow through before his death two years later. The new king, Ferdinand VI, finally acted in 1748, promoting Peralta to Captain General, announcing him as a grandee of Spain, and granting him 300 leagues of land that would be demarcated in years to come, along with all water and mineral rights. A full nine years later, in 1757, it was determined that the grant would not interfere with any previous ones, and it was recommended to give Don Miguel land north of San Javier del Bac. The whole grant was to measure 80,000 varas from north to south, and 240,000 varas from east to west. A vara, depending on your source, was roughly 33 inches, but I think you will agree that 240,000 of anything is still quite a big deal. The next year, 1758, Don Miguel would make the perilous journey north for the official surveying of his land, which culminated in the party scaling a particular rock in the Sierra Estrella Mountains and carving a design to mark it as the center of the western edge of the Barony of Arizonac. The Baron then returned to Mexico, where bureaucracy continued to churn slowly, as it wouldn't be until 1772 that King Carlos V of Spain finally confirmed the location, and then 1776 when the High Court approved everything. Don Miguel de Peralta appears to have gone to his property only once more in 1778, though he did maintain a garrison there and had houses built near the great house known as Casa Grande. In 1770, Don Miguel would marry a noblewoman many years his junior, and in 1781, at the spry age of 73, she bore him a son. This would prove to be the Baron's only child, despite the fact that he would live until 1824 and die at the exceedingly advanced age of 116. However, here's the thing. Everything I just related to you is a lie. Well, I mean, the names of the kings were right, and there was a place called New Spain, but other than that, it's all fiction. But this lie is central to everything that's about to happen in our story, as James Addison Rivas does his level best to convince the world that not only did this happen, but that he was the rightful claimant to Don Miguel de Peralta's property. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, 
the history of Arizona. Episode 136, The Baron of Arizona, Part 2, The Glorious History of the Peraltas. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered the early life and times of James Addison Rivas, as well as his fateful meeting with Dr. George Willing, which opened up this question of an old Spanish land grant in Arizona. Rivas had gone to the territory in 1880, apparently liked what he saw, and from then on decided he was all in on grabbing as much land as he could. On the train ride back to California, he must have perused over the late Dr. Willing's papers, as well as his own notes from his conversations with Willing and William Gitt, the crooked Spanish land title expert he had met in St. Louis. If the Willing documents held any sort of legitimate land grant, it probably didn't amount to much, or much that would hold up in court. So, he would have to seek out supporting documents, or just create them, to bolster his scheme. But first, he actually had to tie up some loose ends. There were two small obstacles in the way of him unfurling his con. The first is something I mentioned last week, that at one point Doc Willing had been penniless in California, and so he had sold the mining rights to his supposed land grant to a merchant named Florin Massel. The second was that, Technically, everything now belonged to Willing's wife, Marianne, and Rivas was only acting in her name. These were merely inconveniences, really, but Rivas decided to get them out of the way early. What's odd to me is that Rivas's original purpose in coming to California back in 1874 was to get the rights back from Massel. That he waited so long until after 1880 to do so kind of supports my pet theory that Rivas originally gave up on pursuing the grant after receiving news of Willing's death, at least until conditions made him second-guess that decision. So oozing as much charm as he possibly could, Rivas now sought out Massel and inquired about the rights. However, he didn't mention anything about a massive land grab he was about to make, but instead pulled out the authorization he carried from Marianne Willing to locate her deceased husband's effects and tidy up his personal business. The Massel family had met Willing and Marianne years before when they lived in California, and felt so much sympathy for Marianne that they lent Willing something like $3,000 before he disappeared to go prospecting. Massel had pretty much given up any hope of seeing that money again, but when Rivas came around asking about the rights and promising that he simply wanted to make sure Marianne had some proceeds from any mining interest now that she was cruelly left alone in this world, he struck a chord. One source says in particular that Mrs. Massell persuaded her husband to take up this charming stranger's offer in behalf of Marianne. So a deal was struck where Massell would give the mining rights back to Revis on the promise of receiving his $3,000 loan back, plus interest, if anything came from mining in Arizona. Obstacle 1 was now down. Now, my primary sources are kind of muddled here, but it's possible that Obstacle 2 was tackled next. Revis decided to travel across the country to follow up on his search for more proof of his claim. 
he'd been led to believe that he could find the documentation he needed in the books of the great church at San Javier del Bach, but those had been lent to a man in Washington, D.C. for display at the Centennial Fair in Philadelphia. Rivas was able to peruse these books and left with photographs of certain documents, which were probably mostly his own creation. And it was either during this trip, or the one the next year, that he would head to Kentucky, where Mary Ann Willing had moved since her husband's death. Once again, laying the charm on as thick as he could, Rivas convinced the widow to sign over all the claim to the land to him, with the understanding that she would receive $30,000 should the land claim be accepted as valid by the U.S. government. Obstacle number two was now gone. So Rivas was the undisputed owner of the land claim, and that meant it was really time to make the most out of it. It's also possible that it was on this trip that he stopped by St. Louis for the one time that he saw his wife Anne between their marriage in 1874 and her filing for divorce on the grounds of abandonment in 1883. But Rivas didn't have time to contemplate his failures as a husband. He had places to go, people to see, and documents to forge. His next trip took him down to Mexico, where he would spend months in Guadalajara and Mexico City. He quickly charmed the archivist in both these old cities, spending long hours showing great interest in their libraries and the collection of documents they kept. Rivas would go through hundreds of old royal decrees, edicts, deeds, land grants, and maps, slowly observing the conditions of the individual documents, the type of inks employed, and the archaic language used. Here also he would get photographs taken of certain documents, along with certified copies of others. And to those were added a healthy dose of papers that were straight up stolen when no one was looking. When he finally left again for San Francisco, it was with a trunk full load of these lawfully and unlawfully obtained documents. In the months following his sojourn into Mexico, Rivas shut himself up in his room, basically living the life of a medieval monk working on some illuminated manuscript, in the great analogy of author E.H. Cookridge. After all, Rivas had legitimate documents before him, so now it was time to create some less-than-legitimate ones. For that, he needed ways to artificially fade and yellow ink and paper, carefully erase parts of already written documents so he could add his own words, inks that would closely match what was already there, and wax that would be the same shades as those used by royal officials. It was a laborious process, and it has been pointed out that Rivas was much more than just a crafty forger. He had actually studied while down in Mexico, and even now in California, carefully schooling himself on the antiquated Spanish contained in his papers, and the various outdated terms for money, measurements, and government officials contained therein. He pored over maps and history, being careful to note what major events had happened when and where. It's only with the careful eye of a scholar that he could concoct a story that would pass scrutiny. But once he was fairly fluent on the language and the details, he attacked his project with all the vigor and world-building of a 15-year-old about to run his first campaign of Dungeons & Dragons. Of course, his first order of business was to create an origin story for his grant, and for that he turned to the one solid, uh, fact that he had. Willing had bought the grant from a man named Miguel Peralta. 
From that one detail, he created the character of the first Baron of Arizona, whose life and times I recounted at the beginning of the episode. Now, there are some things here that stretch credulity just a bit. Like the fact that an 18th century Spaniard living at the edge of civilization would actually live until his 116th birthday. I mean, you're lucky to get close to 100 today with modern medicine, right? Also, the Baron didn't marry until he was in his 60s and only had one son in his 70s? In retrospect, it's easy to see that Rivas was trying to give his land a pedigree without having to invent a whole clan of potential heirs that no one had ever heard of. But still, it meant making some parts of his story less believable. And speaking of the heir, this was none other than Miguel Silva Jesus de Peralta de la Córdoba y Sánchez de Bonilla, born in 1781 at some of his father's property in Sonora. As the first baron, Don Miguel, aged, he decided that it must be established unequivocally who his heirs were, so he made an ironclad will signed by several witnesses in which he left everything to his wife and son. Later, he ensured that it was officially declared that young Miguel was his legitimate heir, and a noble one at that, seeing as both he and his wife had come from Spain and their lines were free from any tainting influences like Gasp, horror of horrors, Jews, Indians, and Moors. Thankfully, Rivas just so happened to have found a copy of all those documents that he could produce, should anyone ask. Two important things to note here. The first is that the first Baron's land claim, that Rivas just so happened to find, had a line in it that specifically said that his barony was to respect the privileges of the Amerindian tribes who had rancherias inside of the chosen property. Cookridge's opinion is that Rivas included this line in order to placate U.S. government officials. His revived barony, after all, did include reservations, including the Apache who at this point were still a major concern, and so this might have been a way for Rivas to magnanimously declare that the Amerindians could stay where they were, as it was in the spirit of the first baron's will. The second and more important matter is that the second baron, Miguel Silva Jesus de Peralta is, in Rivas' fictional account, none other than the man that Willing had originally bought his grant from. Since he was getting closer to his own actual time, Rivas purposely left much of the younger Baron's career blank. His documents showed that Miguel was a cavalry officer and would marry in 1822 at the age of 41, and just two years before his beloved father passed away. And... Also like his father, this marriage was not destined to produce a bountiful crop of offspring. A single daughter, Sophia, was born in 1832. The second baron would never get to enjoy his inheritance as the independence of Mexico, the instability that followed, and the Mexican-American War all took their toll. Thus it was in the 1860s, now a ruined old man, that the second baron finally made it to Arizona in a vain attempt to recover his long-lost family territory. Having no luck, and let's face it, not long for the world, he signed away his inheritance to the good Dr. Willing for some gold dust and prospecting equipment. We'll have much more to say about the heartbreaking but fictitious history of the second baron and Rivas' attempt to create his story out of nothing in coming episodes, 
But for now, the smooth-talking real estate agent from St. Louis had something he knew he could sell to the public. And so he decided that it was time to take his show on the road. You'll remember from last week that Revis had involved the Southern Pacific Railroad in his schemes, making friends with Colin P. Huntington and other top officials. Once he had their verbal support for his endeavor to claim the land, they also lent him their financial support, to the tune of several thousands of dollars. The railroad was banking on Revis stymieing their competition, which would be a business boon for them, and therefore didn't mind propping up, for now, the charmer. And by now, the first half of 1882, rumors began to swirl around in Arizona. Reports were starting to come in from newspapers in San Francisco, whose reporters had interviewed this man named Revis about this giant swath of land he claimed to have the rights to. And these reporters had even examined his documents, which all looked so very genuine, and seemed to confirm everything Revis was saying. And I think at this point, just to give you an idea of why it aroused so much uncertainty and dread, I should stress exactly what he was claiming to own. As I said, the Peralta Grant was some 12 million acres, or 7,500 square miles, inside of a long rectangle that was about 75 miles tall and 235 miles wide. I'm going to try to find a map and have it up at the website, azhistorypodcast.com, but the best way I can describe it is to imagine the northwestern limit being around where the Loop 101 bends from being a north-south freeway to an east-west freeway in Glendale. Now, from there, draw a line down the Loop 101 heading south, cutting past the Salt River, cutting through the Sierra Estrella Mountains, cutting across Interstate 8, and winding up at a point on the Tohono O'odham Reservation. That's how tall it was. Now, from that point, shoot a line heading east that cuts just south of Picacho Peak and through roughly the town of Oracle, or maybe just a bit north of there, and then hits the south side of the Pinaleno Mountains, and that's the range where Mount Graham is, and then keeps going into New Mexico. In fact, the eastern edge, as described, it just barely misses Silver City. The northern boundary line again runs roughly along Loop 101, but then it cuts the far northern portion of the Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation Reservation, State Route 87, and what is today Roosevelt Lake, before continuing across more reservation land until also going into New Mexico. Alright, so inside of this giant rectangle were the established cities of Phoenix, Mesa, Tempe, Casa Grande, Florence, Globe, Safford, Clifton, and Morency. You can imagine why these places, which were all less than two decades old, by the way, would be alarmed by this claim. But the fact that these few spots of civilization were inside of this grant wasn't the biggest issue here. No, the real problem is that if the claim was recognized, the several hundreds of copper and silver mines in those areas like, say, the incredibly wealthy Silver King mine in Superior, technically would belong to Revis. And that wasn't a position that anybody wanted, especially the mine owners. Though no one in any position of authority really believed that such a ludicrous land claim would be recognized, 
As James H. McClintock writes, quote, The claim started a veritable panic in the thickly settled Gila and Salt River Valleys. End quote. So it was into a semi-hostile territory that Rivas entered in 1882 when he went to actually look into filing his claim. He arrived in Tucson on September 3, 1882, and the Arizona Gazette in Phoenix took the effort to lampoon him a little bit, telling its readers that his royal nibs had arrived to lay claim to nine-tenths of all of Arizona. The paper also wrote that during the train ride, quote, Mr. Rivas took occasion to pour into the ears of passengers who prefer to kill time listening to him rather than viewing the dreary desert landscape the story of his acquisition of the Spanish grant and his future course when it is fully confirmed by Congress. Mr. Rivas is in no hurry to effect a settlement with those who occupy his broad acres. End quote. You can also feel a slight sense of glee as the paper also related an embarrassing incident where Rivas had accidentally taken the berth reserved for a female passenger, which required him to apologize and pay a $5 fine. Still, his royal nibs was in Tucson now, and there was business to attend. During his time in Washington, Rivas had learned the cumbersome process for a grant to be recognized. The owner of the grant his descendants or the person to whom it had been assigned, that would be Rivas according to his papers, had to file a claim with the U.S. Surveyor General in the territory. The Surveyor General then had to conduct a thorough investigation, examining all the documents submitted, and make a report to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior. The Secretary of the Interior then had to review the report and the claim, and if he found it valid, give it to Congress for their approval. So, Rivas did stop by the office of the U.S. Surveyor General, one Joseph W. Robbins, and I suggest remembering that name, stating that he indeed had a land claim that he wished to file, but uh, not yet. Instead, several weeks later in October 1882, Rivas actually traveled to Safford to make some investigations about the estate of Dr. Willing and show that he had bought the rights to set estate from the dead man's widow. So it's in Safford that Rivas officially entered into the record his collection of falsified or forged documents, showing the convoluted claim of custody from the first baron of Arizona down to himself. Now, I'm not a land law expert by any means, but Donald M. Powell in his book on the Peralta Grant explains it this way. Rivas asked the court to sell Willing's estate for his behalf as a creditor. The idea here, if I follow the logic at all, is that if the court ordered the sale, he could pick it up for a song, as no one else would really come to this out-of-the-way spot to make a bid for it. This would make his legal possession of the land even more ironclad, I think. Once again, this is a little outside my wheelhouse. And in his book, Powell also says that Rivas may have hoped for the legal recognition of his grant by a lesser county court to give it some more standing before it went through all the hoops, including before the U.S. Congress. However, the court chose not to order the sale as petitioned, and soon enough, Rivas went back to Tucson. Here again, he opened his documents for inspection by local reporters. And the Arizona Daily Star tried to calm everyone's nerves, stating that from all appearances there was little danger of the court siding with Rivas, though even they admitted that he was willing and eager to fight tooth and nail for the territory laid out in his papers. 
Revis also apparently stopped by the office of Surveyor General Robbins again to pepper him with questions, but again declined to file for his land grant just yet. So after only two months in Arizona, and with not that much to show for it, Revis hopped on a train and headed back to California. But this trip was more than just a waste of time. Revis had managed to show people his expertly forged and altered documents, and put everyone on notice that he was willing to use all legal means to claim this territory that had rightfully fallen into his hands, as the documents all attested to, don't you know? But Cookridge also says that his couple months in Tucson taught him that the land-grant situation in Arizona was not any better than it had been in California. As we talked about back in episode 28, the Mexican land title process was not that formal, organized, or maybe even that accurate. There were very few paper deeds out there, and most people just sort of relied on community understandings of who owned what. And I also touched on then that sorting out the families that had existing grants would extend into the 20th century. Well, by the time Rivas arrived on the scene, only 8 million acres of the Arizona Territory had been actually surveyed, and of that, ownership of only something like 250,000 acres had actually been confirmed. In fact, the Secretary of the Interior reported to Congress that about 1,000 claims had been submitted since the end of the Mexican-American War, of which only 150 had been reported to Congress and Congress had only acted on 71 of those. At this point, though, you might be asking, isn't this bad news for Revis? If no one is getting their claim recognized, doesn't that mean his mother of all claims will be hung up in bureaucratic limbo forever too? Well, yes, but at this stage of the game, that actually played right into his hands. Because it didn't matter if it took years for people to work out his grant claim. The uncertainty that it created for every miner, farmer, and worker inside those boundaries was something that he could exploit. Like any fraudulent scheme, Revis knew he couldn't ultimately deliver on what was promised. His forgeries were excellent, but they were still forgeries. But if the people believed that one day he could wind up owning everything they had struggled to build over the course of years, well, they might be willing to pay to end all that uncertainty. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Back in San Francisco, Rivas began playing his mind games by running several articles in the Examiner newspaper extolling the Peralta Grant in Arizona and describing the evidence for its existence, always using the word irrefutable, of course. Then, in March 1883, he appeared again in Tucson with two men and several large trunks of documents. The two men were ostensibly a lawyer named Cyril Barrett and a bodyguard named Pedro Cuervo. Barrett was actually a disbarred attorney wanted for malpractice and graft in California and a confirmed drunk that Rivas had plucked from a gutter somewhere. Cuervo was a short, Hispanic man with a sadistic streak that the saloon girls in Tucson would all come to fear. On March 27th, the three appeared in the office of Surveyor General Robbins yet again, but this time Rivas was prepared to file his claim, and he had brought 
two truckloads of documents to support it. Robbins must have been stunned. Inside the trunks were stacks and stacks of brittle yellow documents or photographs of original documents, including the original royal cedula bestowing the grant, the deeds made out by the head of San Javier del Bac when the boundaries were first established, and all the supporting documents establishing the Peralta family and the chain of ownership that led directly to Rivas himself. The surveyor general and his clerks would pore over the documents late into the night with Rivas. And they were forced to admit that, given everything that was now before them, he had, against seemingly all odds, a really strong case for ownership. After this thorough and careful initial examination, Robbins informed Rivas that he would file the claim for the Peralta grant, as it was his duty. However, he warned him that it was ultimately up to Congress to confirm it and that the process could take years. In the meantime, Rivas could not disturb anyone who had previously settled inside of the land the grant covered. And Rivas cheerfully agreed to these conditions, saying only that he would take some safeguards to ensure that his land was in no way debased. And instead of turning around and heading for California again, this time Rivas headed north to Phoenix to make his base of operations. He had Barrett start compiling a list of landowners and mine owners across all the land he was now claiming, though he stayed relatively secluded because no one was exactly happy to hear that he was in town. And he was joined by two clerks he had managed to recruit and his own brother William who had come to join him. During this period, he also called on M.H. Sherman, who, in addition to being the superintendent of public education for the territory, was then president of the Bank of Phoenix. Sherman was impressed with the sheer amount of cash Rivas was able to deposit in the account he created, and for the sake of conversation asked if Rivas was planning on buying any land. And Rivas simply smiled and said he didn't have to because the land was already his by right. He then went on to offer to donate suitable lots of land for the future University of Arizona, because this was a couple years before the thieving 13th legislature would give that plum to Tucson. And here we see something of a change in Rivas's demeanor. He was still suave, amiable, intelligent, and charming, but he starts to display both a sense of ostentation and largesse, willing to live both as the heir to a barony that he was, and to give things to the little people. With the filing of his claim, and his base of operations now set up in Arizona, Act 1 of Rivas's fraud was ready to begin. So join me next week as he starts to capitalize on the confusion and uncertainty his claim will cause. But remember that this really is just Act 1, because this first attempt will come crashing down around his head, prompting the would-be Baron of Arizona to invent yet another fictitious link to the Peralta family to keep his scam going. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>